You're listening to audio from Valley Christian Fellowship. If you'd like to check out more resources or even connect with us, go to www.vcflongview.org. The key of David. That's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to continue in our series as we've been looking at titles of Christ that come out of the book of Isaiah. And last week, Andrew did a great job talking about how Jesus is the rod or the root of Jesse. And we're going to continue that today in our key text. It comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. If you want to remain standing in honor of the word of God, listen now. Here's what it says. God says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. We'll stop right there. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, as we talk about the key of David and, and even that one verse we just read, you might be thinking, this is a little confusing here. We're going we're gonna to unpack that. But I want to set some things up for you by asking you about that glorious day in your life, that wonderful day that I think most in this room, not quite everyone have experienced, but that day when you received your very own set of car keys. Anybody remember that moment? You guys remember your very first car? You know, for me, my first car, I knew, I knew very exact, I knew exactly what I wanted. See, I grew up, and my dad, he drove a 71 Chevy Suburban. It was white on top, red on, on the body, and I loved that thing, right? That truck, it's what we went camping in. It's what we went to baseball in. I, some of my best memories were sitting in a lawn chair in the very back as we would drive up the mountain. Like, you don't do that these days, right? But that's what we did back then. And so when I, when I got to buy my first car, I bought a, not a 71 Chevy Suburban, but I had my heart set on a 1979 Chevy Blazer. It was a full-size K5, big mud tires, and it was awesome. I could run over curbs. I could run over cars. It was a wonderful truck, right? I love that thing. And when I got those keys, I still remember what those keys look like. I, I, I can visualize them in my mind, right? And I got those keys, and those keys in my mind, you know what that symbolized? Freedom. I mean, when you're 16, 17 years old and you got a set of keys, you can get out of there. What I did not realize is because I was the oldest of four boys, those keys symbolized more freedom for my parents than for me <laughs> because I became the taxi driver, right? Now, I've learned from that and my oldest, he just turned 15, so I can't wait. <laughs> One year from now and we have a taxi driver in our house as well. It's going to be awesome. But, but remember those keys. Remember the access, not just to a car, but to but to new responsibility, to new privilege, kind of to a new life. See, when we talk about keys, and all of us are familiar with keys. We're familiar with keys to our house. We're familiar with keys to our car, at our workplace. And keys are a familiar thing in the scripture as well. You look at this text we just read, this text from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, and it talks about the key to the house of David. Now, you might not know who David is. You might not know much about his house, but that's what we're going to talk about today. See, today what we're going to do is we're going to look, about, look at not just at this Isaiah passage and what the key of David meant then, but we're ultimately going to look at Christ. And here's what we're going to see. As we wrestle with this passage and then the New Testament passages that correlate with us, what we're going to see is that Christ gives you the keys to heaven when he gives you himself. See, see, he doesn't give you a key to a 1979 Chevy Blazer, as fun as that would be. I miss that, by the way. He, he doesn't give you keys to your brand new house. Christ gives you the keys to heaven when he gives you himself. 
Now, if you want to open up your Bibles, if you have not done so already, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 22. We're not going to start in verse 22. We're going to back up a little bit. In our plan today, we're going to look at the core of Isaiah's prophecy for the first part of the message, and then we're going to look at the content of Jesus Christ and the title that we just sang a moment ago when we said, Come Thou King of David, Come. We're going to talk about both of those things, and we're going to see how they combine. And so let's begin all the way back at verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 22. And where we're going to begin is we're going to see that God, God judges his idolatrous people. See, Isaiah here is having a prophetic vision. He is seeing a moment in time when the people of God, Judah, the, the, the country of Judah, they are going to experience warfare called siege warfare. Isaiah is seeing a vision where the Assyrians, they're going to come from the north and the east, and they're going to come up to the gates, up to the city walls of Judah, and they're going to lay siege. Now, siege warfare is when, when the, the attacking army, they come and they set up their, their battle ram, ramparts and they get ready for war, and oftentimes they just wait. They wait for the city that's surrounded to run out of food, to run out of water, to run out of the desire to fight. And so they just wait. And so this is the vision that Isaiah sees. But what we see is the reason Isaiah sees this is because God's actually judging the, the people of Judah who have turned their heart from him. Let me show you what I mean. Open it up to the text, starting in verse 8. What we're going to see is Judah, they, they prepare for the siege, but they do not pray. Judah prepares, but does not, does not pray. Here's what it says. It says, he, God, has taken away the covering or the protection of Judah. It says, in that day, you, Judah, looked to the weapons of the house of the forced. Now, the house of the forced is the palace that Solomon built with all of the wood of Lebanon. And in that house, there was an armory, an armory that was chocked full of weapons. That's, that's what you put in an armory, right? So they go and they look to the armory. Verse 9. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many, and you collected waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. If you're following here, or maybe you're not, let me, let me break this down. Here, here's what's happening. The people of Judah, they know the siege is coming, and so they begin to do everything that you should do to prepare for a siege. So they go and they examine the wall and they say, oh, there's a breach here, there's a weak part here, there's a vulnerable place here, and they go into the city and they tear down their houses to go and fortify the wall, right? Right? And not only that, they go and they get all of the clean water that they can and they bring it inside the wall into a safe place so that what? They have protection with the wall and they have clean water to survive as long as possible. But, but notice the indictment. The, the indictment is not that they go and fortify the walls. You should do that. The indictment is not that they go and collect clean water. They, they should do that. The indictment, the last part of that verse, verse 11, you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Here's the indictment. They're doing everything they can do humanly in their own self-reliance, but they're ignoring God. They're not going to God in prayer. They're not saying, God, we're going to prepare to fight, 
but we know we need you more than we need a strong wall. We, need, we know that we need you more than we need clean water. They're ignoring the God who is literally sending the Assyrians in judgment of them. They prepare, but they don't pray. I mean, that's not all, though. Not only do they prepare and not pray, but Judah, they, they party, but they do not purify. Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. It says, In this day of judgment, God calls for the people to mourn, to weep, to, to shave their head as a sign of mourning, and to put on sackcloth, which is basically itchy, scratchy, uncomfortable clothing, as a sign of their repentance. God calls for them to turn to him in repentance. But, verse 13, And behold, joy and gladness, killing of oxen and slaughtering of sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Here's what the people say. They say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Verse 14, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. See, Judah's not only self-reliant, they're selfish. They're self-focused. They've done everything they can to prepare and they realize it's not enough. And so instead of mourning and purifying themselves, instead of turning from their sin and pouring their heart out to God, they take a fatalistic or a nihilistic mindset. They say, oh, I guess we're done for. We might as well party until the day it ends. And they, they pursue the desires of their flesh instead of pursuing the Lord. Look at this. They prepare and they don't pray. It's like, it's like you have a dentist appointment today and before your dentist appointment, you go into your bathroom, you put toothpaste on your toothbrush, you pull your floss out, you break it off the spool, you set it down, you turn the sink on and then you walk out the door and you go to the dentist but you don't brush your teeth, right? It's pointless. This is what they've done. They have prepared for siege, but they have not prayed. And, and, and when they realize they cannot stand against the Assyrian army, they party. They say, I'm going to please my flesh instead of repent and purify themselves. So just stop for a minute and remember how far repentance goes before the Lord. Remember when we repent, how eager the Lord is to show us grace and his mercy. How, how quick the Lord is to forgive and restore. In this moment, God's desire is to heal his people, but they're unwilling to repent. They are so self-reliant and they are so self-focused that God is bringing his judgment on his idolatrous people. And then the issue becomes compounded. Because not only is God judging his idolatrous people, but secondly, God ends up removing an irresponsible leader. The issues grow worse because they have a leader who is irresponsible, to say the least. Continue with me, verses 15 through 19. I'm going to introduce you to a man named Shebna. He is the steward over the house of David. He is basically second to the king in command. He is responsible for, for the, the workings of the, the kingdom of, of Judah. Here is Shebna, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, 
What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb in the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Verse 17, behold, look at how God's going to deal with him. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you. Look at this. And whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots. You shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. Now, this doesn't sound like a pleasant end for Shebna. But, but the question is, why is God dealing with Shebna this way? You know, we, we read this and we maybe aren't accustomed to ancient Israel and, and what they considered to be honorable and what they, their heart would be set after. But, but look at what Shebna's doing. It's talking about how he's carving a tomb for himself in the rock and he's building a house for or a place for him, a dwelling place for him in the, in the rocks. Here's what Shebna is doing. Shebna, as the Assyrian army is coming to lay siege upon them, when Shebna should be caring for the household of Judah and caring for the people of God, you know what Shebna is doing? He is carving his gravesite in the, in the, in the rock wall. He's carving a gravesite in a place of honor. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to build his legacy by having his tomb, his burial place, in a place of distinction with kings instead of actually doing the work that he has been assigned to do. Here's what he's doing. He's being a very, very selfish leader. He's being a very, very sinful leader. He's becoming incredibly self-focused. And look at how God responds. He says, I am going to whirl you around and around. So I'm going to fling you from this place. You are the shame of your master's house. Why? Because you are selfish instead of selfless. And so God, he says, I am going to remove this leader. You see, Israel and, and Judah, their issue was often compounded by their leaders. When their leader was unwilling, when their leader was unwilling to look to God, Shebna was not looking to God. When their leader was unwilling to be selfless, Shebna was being selfish. And when their leader was unwilling to deal with the sin of the people, which Shebna was overlooking because he was so, so pursuant of his own interest. And so what do you have here? You have God's judgment on his idolatrous people. You have God's removal of an irresponsible leader. But here's where the promise begins to shine through. The next thing you see in this text, God installs a leader of integrity. God's going to remove Shebna, and he's going to put a, a man of integrity in his place. Follow along, verses 20 through 22. This is our key text here. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him, Shebna, with your robe. And I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Now, this is, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
What I've considered over this series is these prophecies, they're like an appetizer. They whet our appetite, and then Jesus, the fulfillment of them, he's like the main course. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but this is, this is the appetizer. This is meant to whet our appetite and increase our interest in the true fulfillment. See, here's the deal. Israel, or Judah here in this moment, they need a true leader. They need a saving leader. What they get is a foreshadowing. What they get is a placeholder. Eliakim, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. And so with this leader, God entrusts to him an invaluable key. God says, I'm going to place the key of the house of David on your shoulder. Now, what does a key signify? If I came to you today and I said, hey, here is the key to my house, what would I be communicating to you? Would I be saying, you better not come near Would I be saying, I don't trust you at all? If I were to give you the key to my house, I would be telling you, I trust you. I I, I believe that you will be responsible. I believe that you will act with integrity. In fact, when we were gone this last week, we gave the key to our house to someone and they came and they took care of our animals and, and we trusted them, but we didn't just trust them. There was more than trust. There was responsibility. There was even power. And so what does this key signify? This key signifies the same thing that a key signifies today in a lot of ways. First of all, this key, it signifies trust. God was putting his trust in Eliakim. Let me me show you a few ways that demonstrate how Eliakim was trustworthy. Look at verse 20. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim. My servant. You want to know one of the greatest titles you can ever receive from God? My servant. You know, Jesus' words in Matthew 25 as he tells the story of the three servants who are all given different amounts of responsibility and then the master leaves and then when he comes back and they give a report, what does he say to the wise and the good stewards? He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. God says of Eliakim, I trust you. You are my servant. See, a servant puts God first. A servant says God is more important than I am. And that's what Eliakim was entrusted to do. But secondly, Eliakim was trusted because of the way he would not just respond to God, but because of the way he would treat the people. Look at verse 21. I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do you see the contrast here? Shebna was not fatherly. Shebna was the opposite of a good father. Shebna is like a father that says, I am going to do whatever I want that's going to please me. Shebna was like a father that put himself first and was selfish and self-centered instead of putting his family first. But God says, I am going to appoint my servant Eliakim and he will be like a father, a good father. The kind of father that says, I am going to care for the needs of my family before my own wants and desires. The the kind of father that says, I am going to do what's right for the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. See, this key, God is placing this key on the shoulder of Eliakim. Why? Because God trusts him. The key signifies trust, but it's more than that. The key signifies trust, and secondly, the key signifies power. Verse 22 again. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. He shall open 
and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. See, opening and closing, this is, this is a task that is of power. Basically what it's saying is everyone that Eliakim opens the door, they are able to come in and no one can stop them from coming into the kingdom of David. And it says, and everyone that Eliakim closes the door to, and no one will be able to enter, no matter how smart, no matter how strong, no matter how talented they are. See, ultimately, the Eliakim holds all of the power of access into the house of David, which is really the kingdom of David. He, he, he is the gatekeeper. He is the key holder, literally. He, he now has this incredible power. We're going to talk about this entry and exit again in a moment. So this key, it signifies trust. It signifies power, which also means it signifies authority. It signifies authority. Verse 21 actually says this plainly. It says, I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. God says, Shebna, you're no longer going to have any authority over the house of David. He says, Eliakim, you will now have all the authority over the house of David. You will now be the steward completely in control and, and with all the authority. Now, I just want to take a, a quick break. I want to take a, a brief excursus away from this. And I just want to observe for you how authority works in the kingdom of God. Because we live in a world and it says, you want to be a leader? You want to have authority? What do you do? You grab it. You, you, you walk on others. You assert yourself. You, you make sure that you're loud and proud and you push others down. But, but notice how authority is given in the kingdom of God. Look at these inequalities here. I, I said equations the last service and someone said, Mike, that's not an equation. It's an inequality. And so look at these inequalities. I think they're going to be on the screen. The first is authority begins when you put God as greater than yourself. Isn't this what Eliakim does? Eliakim says, God, I'm going to be your servant. I'm not, going to, I'm not coming to see, say what you can do for me. I'm saying, what can, what can I do to serve you? Not only does authority start by putting God as greater than self, but secondly, authority begins to be formed as you put others as greater than yourself. When you put others greater than yourself, what are you doing? You're saying, how can I serve you? How can I care for you? How can I do what's best for you? How can I sacrifice my own wants and my own desires and my own needs to show you that I love you? Now, now watch this. If you put God as greater than self and as you put others as greater than yourself, then here's what happens. You end up having an authority that is greater than yourself. You end up having an authority that is greater than the authority you would have just as you as a mere person. See, all of us, we, we might have a little bit of authority on our own, but, but if God gives us the authority, then all of a sudden we have a much greater level of authority. Here's how it works. Put it to the test. January's coming. You're all going to make your New Year's resolutions, and they're going to last until February, right? And so maybe you make a 30-day New Year's resolution in your workplace, in your family, even in your church. If you say, I'm going to consistently walk around in these areas, and I'm going to make sure I put God first, and I'm going to put others first, watch what happens. Watch what happens in your workplace or your family as you say, I'm going to put the needs and desires of other people ahead of my own. Little by little, you want to know what's going to happen? your influence is going to grow. People are going to start to care about what you say. 
They're going to start to come to you for your advice or for your counsel. They're, they're going to start to listen to what you say with more gravitas, with more weight. And what, what begins as influence in time, God will use that, and he will turn that into an authority. Not an authority that says, you're going to listen to me, buddy, but an authority that gives you an incredible amount of influence in other people's lives. This is how God raises up authority. He raises up the person that puts him first and the person that puts others first. And then God puts that person in a place of great authority. This is how authority works in the kingdom of God. And so what you see here, you see that this is, this is a, a, a picture of a greater reality. This prophecy of Eliakim, when God says, I will give you the key to the house of David, this is a picture of a greater prophecy. And how do we know that? Well, because Jesus tells us that he... Not Eliakim, but Jesus himself is the one who now holds the key to the house of David. See, we, we've looked at the, the core of this prophecy, but now I want us to see the content of Christ's title. See, Christ, Christ has the key of David. Let me show you what I mean. Revelation chapter 3. We've actually, we've been in Revelation a handful of times over the last few weeks. There's a lot of the prophecy in Isaiah that, that are pointed to in the book of Revelation. In fact, I think in 2022, we're going to spend uh, seven weeks looking at the seven churches in the, in the book of Revelation, those chapters two and chapters three. But, uh, but I want you to look at chapter three, verse seven. Jesus is speaking here. Jesus is speaking and he says to the angel, which is probably more likely the leader or maybe even the elder or pastor at the church in Philadelphia. Here's what he says. He says to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, this is Jesus talking about himself. The true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Does this sound familiar? This is, this is the exact parallel of, of the promise given to Eliakim. He, he, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says it's no longer Eliakim that has this key on his shoulder. Jesus says, I am the one who has the key. And he's talking about the key of David. And here he's not talking about enter, entry into a household. Here he's actually talking about entry into the kingdom of God. When Jesus in Revelation 3.7 is talking about the key of David, he is talking about entry into the eternal kingdom. Here he's talking about eternal life. You know what Jesus is talking about? He's talking about heaven. He said, I am the one who holds the key to heaven. But listen, Jesus doesn't have a single key. Jesus has a key ring. Some of you guys carry around key rings, like 50 rings on, keys on them, right? I see you guys, you like jingle bells walking through the hall, right? But, but Jesus, he has his own key ring. Revelation chapter one, verse 18, we see his other keys. Here's what he says. He says, I'm the living one. He says, I died and behold, I live forevermore. He's the one who died for our sins and was resurrected. He is the one true Savior. But then he says this. He says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You know what Jesus has? He has the key to eternal life, and he holds the keys of eternal judgment. Jesus is talking about eternity here. On Jesus' key ring, he is demonstrating that he holds all of the keys he is the only one that you go through to have access into heaven. I mean, you ever, you ever had a door that you couldn't get into? 
When we moved into our house a couple of years ago, we, uh, we had one door that we did not receive a key for. Actually, we had a few, but we had one in particular we had no key for, and it was the bedroom door of our youngest son. Go figure. You could probably figure out where the story is going, right? And we told him, we said, hey, here's the deal. Just don't lock the door and everything's fine. Like two weeks into it, locks the door and shuts it behind him. And so we're locked out of this room. And so I got to get a drill and I drilled out the lock. It was kind of fun. Anybody ever do that before? It was a little bit of an adventure, but, but here's the deal. There is no drilling out the keys that lock heaven and the keys that lock hell. Only the keys work. Those locks, what Jesus opens, no one can close. And what Jesus closes, there is no one there is no drill, there is no lockpick kit, there is no one who can open the, what Jesus has closed. This is the point here. Jesus, he is the only one who has entry into the kingdom of heaven. He has the key of heaven, but, but, but I want to actually push us a little bit further. Not only does Christ have the key of David, but I would argue that Christ is the key of David. Christ is the only key that gives access into the heavenly kingdom. Here's why I say that. I say that, and I, I want to say it with two kind of characteristics. First of all, Christ is the exclusive key of David. You know what exclusive means? One and only. There, there is none, no other key. You can't make a copy of this key. There, there are not multiple sets of this key. Jesus, he is the, he is the key of David. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 14, verse 6. Again, Jesus speaking here. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Greek is the exact same in the English. There are what are called definite articles here. Jesus does not say, I am a way, as in like, hey, there are all sorts of different ways. Just find your way, and as long as you believe sincerely, it's fine for you. Jesus makes it very clear that he is the exclusive and the only way. This means that you cannot find a way into the heavenly kingdom by being a good person. It's impossible. This means you cannot find your way to the heavenly kingdom by coming to church enough or by serving enough or by giving enough. This also means that you can't find your way to the kingdom of God by following a different religion. Our world wants to teach us this relativistic idea that says, as long as you believe something and you believe it sincerely, you're going to end up in heaven. Jesus says no. He says that's not the way it works. He says, there is only one way. He says, it is me. Jesus says, I am the exclusive key. This is why we make such a big deal about Jesus every single week. Think about the series we're in right now. I mean, if you've been around with us for the last few weeks, here's what we've done. We've been talking about how Jesus, first week, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. You know what we talked about that week? Jesus. The next week, we talked about how Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the wisdom you need. You know what we talked about that week? Jesus. The next week, we talked about how Jesus is the Lord of might, and he has ultimate power and ultimate authority. You know what we talked about that week? Jesus. Last week, Andrew did a great job talking about how Jesus is the root of Jesse. He's, he's the root that falls out of Jesse. Guess what he talked about? Jesus. Guess what we're going to talk about next week? In the, in the new year, when we talk about, we're going to look at the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Guess what we're going to talk about every week? Jesus. Jesus. 
because he is the exclusive key of David. But he's not only the exclusive key of David. Listen very carefully. Jesus is also the intimate key of David. You could put the word personal key of David. You could put the word relational key of David. Let me show you what I mean. Let's listen to some more of Jesus' words here. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, he says some of the most intense words in all of Scripture. Here's what he says, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from a thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity or of lawlessness. You realize that there is a there is a grave difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. You can know all the facts about Jesus. You can sing all the songs. But what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about relationally, he's talking about knowing him. He, he's talking about trusting him. See, see, the key of David is not a key that you go and you hang on your wall so people can admire occasionally. The key of David is not something you put on your key rack on your house and you only take it off the rack when you come to church on Sunday and then you go and you put it back on the rack on the next week and then you forget all about it. The key of David is a person and his name is Jesus Christ and he is personal and he is relational. I would say he's intimate. He, he, he calls you to come and to know him. How do you know him? When's the last time you went and you closed your door and you met with him in secret and you fell on your face and you said, God, Jesus, this is who I am. Here's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here's my sin and here's my shame. Here's my selfishness. Here's my frustration. Here's my worry. Here's my fear. Here's my anxiety. Here's it all. He knows you. When you do that, how often do you, do you dive into his word and you say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know your truth. Show me who you are. Let me see you more clearly. Change the way I think. Change the way I feel. Change what I believe. Change my actions. Conform my life so I look like you. You know what you do when you do that? That's how you know him. That's how you know him. 
Growing up as a kid, I, 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 I knew so much about Ken Griffey Jr. You guys know Ken Griffey Jr.? Best baseball player ever, right? In my opinion, I, I collected the cards. I, I, I knew his stats. Someone earlier there told me that their, their brother had them quiz them on Ken Griffey Jr. stats. I was kind of like that. Like I knew so much about him. In fact, when I was in third or fourth grade, I wrote Ken Griffey Jr. a letter, knowing, just knowing that he would write me back. I'm still waiting for the, for the letter. As an adult, I still love him. A couple years ago when, when uh, they retired his jersey at then Safeco Field, we had some friends that gave us tickets to that night. I didn't cry at all until I got in the stadium, but uh, it, it, was, it was a wonderful night, right? And, and I still know a lot about Junior, right? About the kid. I know his nicknames. I know that he's got a sweet swing. I know that he made wearing your baseball cap backwards really popular. But listen, I don't know him. I never met him. I've been within a few hundred feet, right? If, if I were to show up at his house, it would not just be awkward. He would probably invite some other people that had badges to come and join us. You know what I mean? I, I don't know him. Do, do you know Jesus? Do, do you know his love and his forgiveness and his grace? Do, do you know his care do you know his holiness and his truth and his faithfulness? Do you know his calling upon your life? Do you know the, the, the narrow path that he has called you to walk on that according to Jesus himself, very few find? Look at his words again. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Contextually here, Jesus is saying that they think they're on the right path. They think they're just fine. They think eternally they're, they're going to be a-okay. They, they have no concern at all. But they're, they're going with the flow, they're going with the crowd, they're going with the culture, they're going with the world, and everything is easy and everything is breezy. And he says they are on the path to destruction. To destruction. And he says that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Come follow Jesus. It's going to make your life a piece of cake. No. Come follow Jesus. Pick up your cross. It, it doesn't promise ease. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not, Mike's paraphrase, did we not do all sorts of good churchy stuff in your name? You know I was there at least once a month. You, you know I gave occasionally. You know I helped with VBS or sung once in a while on the worship team or volunteered in this ministry or this ministry or gave food to this charity. You know all these things I did in your name and Jesus will say the most heartbreaking, heart-destroying words that you will ever hear in that moment. I never knew you. Do you know him? Do you know about him? Or do you know him? See, Jesus is the key of David. 
The, the exclusive key of David, no, nothing else will get you to heaven besides trusting in Jesus and his death and resurrection by knowing him. But Jesus is the intimate key of David. He says, come near. Come, come know me and come let me know you. Now, we, we could potentially end right here, but I want to push this key theme a little bit further because I think the scripture takes it a little bit further. See, not only, not only does Christ have the key of David, not only is Christ the key of David, but finally Christ entrusts the key of David. He, he takes himself, he takes the key of David, he takes the only way to enter into the heavenly kingdom, and he entrusts it to you. To you. He puts the key of heaven in your hand when he gives him your, himself to you. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples. He had just asked them, who does everyone say that I am? And they, they tell him all the answers they're hearing from all the people. And then he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, he speaks up. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And listen to how Jesus responds to him. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. In heaven. Look at verse 19 again. This, I want to zero in on this passage. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does this sound like? This sounds like God saying to Eliakim, I will give you the key to the house of David, and whatever you open, no one will shut, and whatever you shut, no one will open. Will open. This sounds like Jesus' words in Revelation 3.7. He says, I have the key of David, and whatever I open, no one will shut, and whatever I shut, no one will open. And then Jesus turns to Peter, and not just to Eliakim, and not just to himself, and not just to Peter, but I would argue to everyone who makes the same declaration that Peter makes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus puts those keys in your hand. He says, you now have the key to heaven. You now, have, you now have the key to access. You see, when you hold the keys of the kingdom in your hand, when you hold those keys, you want to know what you really hold? You hold the gospel. When you hold the keys of the kingdom, what you're holding is the gospel. You see, the Roman Catholics, they really kind of take a strange turn with this. They say, oh, this is Jesus appointing Peter as the Pope. And so every successive Pope will follow in the line of Peter, and they're going to have a special power and a special authority, and they're, they're unquestionable in their teaching. That's not what Peter, or Jesus is talking about here. This is not a passage about Peter. Listen, this is a passage about Jesus. This is a passage about Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. This means not that Peter has unquestionable authority. No. This means that, that those who proclaim Jesus as the Christ, they have been given these keys. You know what those keys look like? It looks like opening 
the kingdom of heaven for other people. Not through your work, not through your sacrifice, but by pointing them to Jesus and his death and resurrection. That means the gospel is a responsibility you carry. You've been, you've been given this gospel. It's a responsibility you carry. You ever seen a movie where someone makes an escape from jail? You know the movies, like, there's always a movie about someone escaping from jail, and you, you ever seen the movie where they're escaping and they're running by all the cells of the other prisoners? And sometimes in the movie, they're running from cell to cell and they're unlocking one, and then they're unlocking one, and it's like a jailbreak, and everyone's going for it, and everyone's getting out of jail. You ever seen that one? Or, or sometimes in the movies, Instead of the prisoner escaping, unlocking all the cells, they're like running by the cells being like, ah, you sucker, you're going to stay in here. I'm free. You're not, right? And they, they don't care for the other people. Listen, you and I, we've been freed. We've been loosed. We've been loosed from the chains of our guilt and shame. We've been freed from, from our, the consequence of our sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been set free and we have been given the keys and we are, we're in the middle of a jailbreak, aren't we? Which escapee are you? Are you the one opening as many cells as possible by sharing Jesus and his love with as many people as possible? Are you the person mocking those who are left in prison as you run to your freedom. The gospel is a responsibility we carry. But lastly, listen, that means the gospel is a, it's a gift we share. It's a gift we share. It, you, ever, you ever locked yourself out of your house or your car? Raise your hand. Let me ask this. Anybody here never locked yourself out of your house or your car? I, I want to know if there's anyone. One person. God bless you, man. That's incredible. So, you know, throughout, throughout the years, you know, you have those occasions where you lock yourself out of your vehicle. And you know, the moment you close your house door or your car door with the keys in it, you know that like sinking feeling in your stomach where you're like, oh, I can't believe, oh, you like, it's the moment it closes and you know it. Like a couple of years ago, we were camping and we had our keys locked in the, the, the car. And that was not fun being camping and trying to figure that out. Hours upon hours of heartache, right? But, but think about this for a minute. We live in a world where, where all of those without Christ they have basically been locked out without realizing it. Many of them love the fact they're locked out. They don't realize what they're missing. They are locked out of the kingdom of heaven. And you have the keys. Imagine being locked out of your house and your neighbor has the keys and your neighbor's sitting on the front porch drinking a lemonade and you're locked out of your house and you say, hey, would you let me in? And he says, What? Hey, I, need, I locked my keys in my house and I know you got an extra set. He's like, yeah, I'll get to it in a little while. Maybe, to, how about tomorrow? How about I'll come over tomorrow and unlock your door? You have the keys of the kingdom. You carry them when you carry the gospel. Let's bring it all the way back. Remember Shebna? Remember Eliakim? Which one are you? You have a stewardship. You have a stewardship. Let's take it back to Jesus' words. He talks about the good tree bearing good fruit and the bad tree bearing bad fruit. Which one are you? He talks about the servant who is good and faithful. And if we were to look at that story, there's also a servant who is wicked and selfish. Which one are you? I imagine we're all a little bit of both from time to time. 
But today, you know what we're doing? We're remembering that Jesus has the key of David, that Jesus is the key of David, and look at this, that Jesus has placed the key of David in your hand. He says, go and unlock some cells. Heavenly Father, we, we just praise you for Jesus for everything about him over and over again, for his death and resurrection. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you for the great love that he's shown us. God, we thank you that through him we have access to you and we have this confidence, not because of how good we are, but because of what he's done for us. Father, I pray for those in this room and even those watching online, I pray if there's, there's anyone who has yet to trust in Jesus, who is yet to, to understand and have the key of David unlock the eternal reality of heaven. Father, I pray that today would be the day where they take that step, where they see Jesus in his glory and beauty, and where they trust that he died for their sin, and he rose to give them life. And God, I pray for all of us as a church. I pray that you would make Valley the kind of church that is full of those who are helping others escape the prison of this world, the, the judgment of their sin, as we lovingly, gently, boldly share the gospel of Jesus. God, I pray that even this week as we prepare for Christmas and we have these Christmas Eve services, Father, I pray that that night, even those services would be a jailbreak as we invite our friends and our family members to come and hear the gospel, that they might believe in Jesus and be saved. Have their shame and guilt removed. Be forgiven of their sins and receive new life in Christ. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.